Uh, but no, this is no doubt um, a heavy passage. Um, I've been joking with my wife over the last few weeks, depending on where the nursery schedule landed, that uh, it's probably good that she'd be in nursery uh, during the sermon on marriage. Um, and uh, that, that was, of course, joking. But no, it, is, it is a heavy passage, right? And as a pastor, these are the types of passages that you get to um, that are always a challenge to preach and teach. Why? Because you know there's always room for improvement. There's always opportunity for growth. And ultimately, as I look across this auditorium, there's certainly plenty of capable and qualified men with many more years and even decades, <laughs> Dave Painter, of, of marriage experience under their belt that, that certainly would have a lot to say about marriage. And so my my 12, almost 13 years of marriage does not, just to state the obvious, qualify me as a marriage expert, right? It just doesn't, right? And my wife, if she was here, would give a hearty amen to that. Um, we're, it's a work in progress, right? And we were even talking about this. My, my Aunt Leslie here is here from, uh, from South Dakota. I don't know why we were talking about this, but we made the comment that marriage is one of the hardest things you'll ever do, right? And when you're 18, 19, 20, or whenever you got married, uh, you don't always realize that, that marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult, and it is certainly very sanctifying as it reveals our heart, and it reveals our selfishness, and it reveals um, our, the chinks in our armor, so to speak, as a human being. And so uh, marriage is a challenging topic, not just because many times we feel inadequate, but secondly, because it's fallen on hard times in our society. Um, if you're in the workplace, water cooler talk, you're, you're no doubt coming across a number of different situations and scenarios in your family, outside your family, of marriages being broken apart for a number of different reasons. Divorce percentages are skyrocketing, not just outside the church, but also what inside the church. And, and many times it's a challenge for us to come to a common ground and understanding of God's purpose, God's design, and God's role in and biblical, and biblical marriage. Uh, we have topics such as same-sex marriage, cohabitation, open relationships. These are no longer fringe views in our society, but they're coming more and more what mainstream, which means a traditional biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman is becoming more and more what? Of a minority. And so, no doubt, it's important for us as Christ followers, as believers in Jesus, to understand that there is a very specific and large view and perspective of marriage that we should uphold, not only personally for our own home and our own marriage, but in the context of the world. Because, friends, there is something very evangelistic about this topic of marriage. You say, what, what do you mean by that? God, before the foundation of the world chose to have what as the first institution that he established on this earth? It was, it was marriage. Before government, before even the church, the body of Christ, he chose marriage to be the foundational illustration of how God is going to relate to man through Jesus Christ. And that is beautiful. That is huge. That is game-changing. And how ultimately we hold this view of marriage in our life. Because it's not just about me and my wife. It's not just about my home. It's not just about doing the right thing and staying married. It's about understanding God's purpose and establishing 
marriage on this earth. Right? We go back all the way to what? Genesis chapter number one, verse number 31. And are you looking forward to our Genesis series? It's coming. We got to get through Ephesians first, but it's coming, right? So Genesis chapter number one, verse number 31, it's recorded that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. And then in chapter two, verse number seven, the Lord God formed the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. What? Andy said it, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So we have all of creation and we have man, Adam, on this earth. And then God states in verses 18 through 24, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God did not create us for ourselves. God did not create us to be alone, he created us with a longing and a desire to be what? In relationship. So God, with a clear and distinct gender, made male and female. And with a specific purpose in the context of biblical marriage, he gave them specific roles and design in that marriage. And he created the first institution on this world and he called it marriage. This is beautiful. Is something that we should cherish and adore. And friends, many times we've allowed the influence of the world and their growing disdain for biblical marriage to impact even how we value and understand this biblical concept of marriage. So friends, the call is this, for us to understand what God's word has said about marriage. To understand it, to believe it, and by faith to, to desire to walk that out by his grace and ultimately show forth a beautiful picture of Christ and his church and the gospel as a result of how we as husband and wife relate to each other. Now, there was a lot said there, right? I don't know if you came this morning and your understanding of marriage is that big of a deal. I hope you did. When we stand before God and a host of witnesses at your, your wedding ceremony, that you understood the importance and the role of marriage as representing that, that it was a sacred vow before God and these witnesses, and that it should not be broken. But ultimately, we understand that we have an active participation in this thing that we call marriage. Marriage is not a passive activity, as we see in Scripture. Husband has a distinct role and a purpose and should be living it out. Wife has a distinct role and purpose and should be desiring to live that as well. We do not just ooze into marriage. It is two people coming together on purpose 
desiring to live out God's purposes for their life in the context of marriage. So the title of my marriage is, or title of my message is God's Design in Complementarian Marriage. Now, when I say that word complementarian, it might sound like a big word and you say, what in the world is that? Right? This view of complementarian marriage is this. It holds a theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other together via different roles in life and in the church. A contrasting view is egalitarian. This is the theological view that uh, not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and in society. So each theological view, egalitarian and complementary, and view man and woman as what? Equal in their person and their being. The difference is going to be what? That a complementary view is going to say that there are distinct roles and purposes in God's design in marriage. The wife should not function in the same capacity as the husband, and the husband should not function in the same capacity as the wife. They are different, they are distinct, but both husband and wife are what? Equal in their person and their being. These are very important and distinct differences that we need to be clear about it. LHBC, we believe that the whole of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, support a complementary view of marriage. We can simply say this. Our view of marriage is equal but distinct. Equal in personhood, distinct in role and function. And if you share that view in the marketplace of life, in society, that's going to be not viewed on very highly, right? It's going to be cast away as archaic, old-fashioned, irrelevant, even inappropriate, oppressive. You're going to hear words like that. So how should we respond to that? As a Christ follower, we don't hold our theological positions based on what the popularity of those positions. We hold our theological views because God's word has spoken. And we must obey it because it is our only rule for faith and practice. So as popular or as unpopular as a biblical idea of marriage between one woman and one man may or may not be, we must hold to it as truth because God's word is inspired, is inerrant, and it is worthy of our complete faith and trust. So with that said, we're going to transition to our text this morning, Ephesians chapter number five. And I hope you can um, allow me to apologize for a lengthy introduction, but there's so much packed into this topic of marriage, so much baggage, misunderstanding. And so I think it's important for us to understand that at the basis of marriage is an important identity and understanding of gender between one man and one woman. And certainly as we start to transition in chapter five now to these different applications of the doctrinal truth that Paul has laid out to now apply him in the home between husband and wife, in the home between child and parent, we're going to see these truths start to come together and start have the opportunity to live out these doctrinal truths. So my big idea this morning is this, because marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel, we should as husband and his wife passionately desire to live out our God-given roles within the context of our generation for the glory of God. Every generation has battles that they fight scripturally and doctrinally and theologically. 
the battle that my generation, that collectively our generations will fight in the days to come and that our children's generations will fight is this battle of understanding what God's word has said about marriage. Again, so this big idea, because marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel, we should as husband and his wife passionately desire to live out our God-given roles within the context of our generation for the glory of God. Let's read our text, Ephesians chapter number five, verse number 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are what members of his Body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So interestingly enough, the text here this morning contains the longest sustained teaching in the New Testament on the topic of marriage. And it's divided into three clear sections that will allow really the text to just simply guide our outline this morning. The first point is this. Wives should submit to their husbands in the context of God's design and biblical marriage. Wives should submit to their husbands in the context of God's design and biblical marriage. Now, anytime we use that word submit in the context of marriage and in conversation, um, we must clarify what we mean by submit. Uh, this word has been grossly abused, misrepresented, misapplied, and it has hurt the name of Christ and his church deeply. And so I want to be clear about what we mean by this word submit. There's no doubt baggage it's probably one of the most polarizing topics and words in the scriptures that we see. So again, we need to take back this definition of this word submit. Why? Because like I said before, it's been horribly abused, taken advantage of all in the name of God's word. And I don't know about you, but friends, we cannot allow that to happen. Uh, one of the things that we have as priority of, as elders is to declare when there is a misapplication or misrepresentation representation of Scripture. And certainly in this topic of marriage and how men are relating to their wives and how wives are relating to their men, this is very important in our culture, in our context, with all the baggage that it has for us to clarify what we mean by wives submitting to their husbands. So in an effort to help us understand what it means, like I often do, I want to describe what Paul is not saying here and then describe what Paul is saying in this text. What Paul is not saying is that women 
are less than men. Let me say that again. What Paul is not saying is that women are less than men. Okay? And this is very important for us as the church to believe that. Not just to say that, but to believe that and demonstrate that in how we relate and how we organize and how we ultimately practice biblical marriage and church in the context of our culture. Because as the world has looked on and they've observed how men and women are relating to each other in the context of biblical marriage, they have not seen us practice that men and women are equal in their personhood, in their being. And that is devastating. And it is sad. Paul is not saying that men should domineer over women by saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Paul is not giving men the right or the license to relate to their wives in a selfish, proud, arrogant, or self-serving manner. Let us be clear on that, men. Let us be clear on that. Paul is not saying that women should stay in the kitchen and be barefoot and pregnant or any other negative cliche that we might be familiar with. And it's not the role of the woman. They are equal in their personhood, in their being. They're equal, but we have distinct roles in God's design in marriage. Paul is not saying that wives should blindly follow an openly sinful husband because he wears the pants in the relationship. Do we believe that? We need to be clear about what this means for wives to submit to their husbands. Friends, this is not, and I say that with a capital N-O-T, what Paul is saying here. This is not what he means by this word, submit to their husbands. And more importantly, this is not what God's saying about what he believes marriage to be or what it should look like. And a note to men, and I'm going to have lots of sidebar notes to men this morning. I apologize because they're to myself. And uh, I think this is the biggest opportunity for us to recapture a biblical idea and ultimately a realization of biblical marriage in our day is it's going to start with men, right? So I don't apologize for speaking to myself and having some sidebar conversations that the women can listen into this morning, right? But for men... Here this morning, your section is coming, but I want to be clear that the state and health of your marriage is whose responsibility? It's mine. It's yours. All right, let me say that one more time. The state and the health of your marriage is your responsibility. But Eric, you you don't know my wife, right? You don't don't know what I'm dealing with at home, right? No, let me say it again. The state and health of your marriage is your responsibility responsibility. And we're going to see that supported here in Ephesians chapter number five. So no matter who your wife is or what you may or may not be dealing with at home, your marriage is where it's at today because of who? Me. Right? And because of you collectively as men, it is where it is today because of us. That's important for us to note before we dive into what Paul is saying here for for the wives and how they are to submit and relate to their husbands. 
So I pray for myself and I pray for you that some of these negative ideas that I just described would never be said of us. How we speak to, how we relate to, how we come alongside and help and support our wives should never be viewed in some of these cliches that I just mentioned. The testimony of our marriage should never be described in a proud, arrogant, domineering, or selfish manner. But rather, we lay the foundation for our wives to come alongside and support and follow and submit ultimately to the headship of our role in marriage. So we cherish our wives. We love our wives. We support our wives. We honor our wives. We value our wives. And in case we haven't connected this dot, it is very important that we understand that the Bible is pro-woman, right? The Bible is, is pro-women. It is for women. It, it is for men. And it is for marriage. It is for the family. It is for a biblical home. It is none of these things isolated from each other. God has chosen women in such a specific and special way throughout the ages as recorded in the scripture. We have Mary, we have Eve, Sarah, Miriam, Esther, Ruth, Naomi, Deborah, Mary Magdalene, Lydia, Priscilla. The list goes on and on and on again of how God has uniquely used women to do incredible things for his glory. And so you young ladies here, you absolutely have an opportunity to make a big impact in your world for the cause of Christ, for his glory. That is not just a man's job. It is a Christian job, both male and female, man and woman. So we want to be clear to uphold that here this morning. I say, Eric, why would you take so much time to lay that foundation? Again, I think it's a big deal for us to understand God's view of men and women so that we can understand how they relate together in this first institution that God established called marriage. So why take such a lengthy time on this? One, because the church at large has failed women in upholding their true dignity and purpose in the world, and that has caused tremendous harm to the name of Christ and his church. Two, because it's never too late to do the right thing and to clarify what scripture does and does not say, and we see when we see somebody taking it out of context and applying it, misrepresenting it, or abusing it for their own gain. So friends, I, I know you've seen it, Maybe you haven't, I have. There have been some segments of Christianity where there are gross misapplications of this idea of submission, which have led to a twisted form of emotional, spiritual, and even sexual abuse that we must be very clear and concisely condemn. That that is not biblical, it is not Christian, and it is not right. So we have a pretty good idea what Paul is not saying here, but let's look at verse number 22 and let's look at what Paul is saying. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, first point, uh, sub point under our first point is wives submit to their husbands as an extension of their submission to who? The Lord. We're gonna see this in chapter six with the child-parent relation. Children, obey your parents, how? In the Lord. So when we see this word submit, it's always in the context of the broader idea of submitting to one another as the body of Christ. Have we forgotten verse, 20, forgotten verse 21 just before our, our passage this morning? Submitting to one another out of reverence for who? For Christ. So this idea of submitting is not just a wife thing. 
It's a body of Christ thing. It is a brother and sister thing. It is how we are to live out the Christian life. Deferring to one another, preferring one another, providentially submitting to one another out of love, putting others before ourselves. This is the mind of Christ that we're going to look at of, out of Philippians chapter 2 in just a few moments. Out of reference for Christ, everyone is involved in this idea of submission. Paul says, if you want to be imitators of God and walk in love, remember that's the purpose statement of chapter number 5. If you want to be imitators of God and walk in love, what are you going to be about the business of doing? Submitting to one another. In the context of relating to each other in the body of Christ, in the context of what? Biblical marriage. Man, woman, young or old, we are all to have the mindset of what? Submitting to one another. It's how we as Christians relate to each other. And it certainly applies to the topic of marriage. Where do we see this relationship, um, an example of it fulfilled in the Bible? Don't we see it in the example of the Holy Trinity? We have God the Father. We have God the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit, right? They're the same in essence, but they are different in what? Function and role. We have the Son submitting to the Father when he came to this earth, right? We see that probably best lived out in the Garden of Gethsemane just moments before Christ would go to the cross and endure a pain so deep and a shame so heavy that he cries out to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? This is what it looks like to submit. This doesn't make Christ less than the Father. Christ emptied himself of the prerogatives of heaven, the prerogatives of Godhead, while still maintaining his Godhead. He was the God-man on this earth. He was no less God than in heaven than he was on this earth. But ultimately, he submitted to what? The will of the Father. So I want to be clear, submission is not equated with a lessening of one's value in this world. Right? I want to be clear about that. Ultimately, again, we have this best description of Christ living this out. This idea of submission was embodied in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord of one mind. Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others, how? More significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our example of submission. The Holy Trinity, Christ himself living out this mindset of subjecting himself under the Father's will, 
so that the glory of God could be put on full display. That's what it's all about, friends. It's about us operating in God's design and complementary marriage so that we can put the glory of God on full display so that the gospel can be revealed in new and unique ways as a result of us living out this biblical idea of marriage. Secondly, wives submit to their husbands as demonstrated through the organization of the local church. Do we remember chapter four of Ephesians? Just looking back, remember verse number 11 says, and he gave what? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're now to grow up in every way into who? Into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, verse 23, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We have the example of the church, right? We just learned in Ephesians chapter four that, that God has given the church gifts. He's given teachers and elders and spiritual teachers. They are not the head. Who's the head? Christ. We are sheep among sheep coming together to build each other up in love. So as we voluntarily come together as the body of Christ, the church, here this morning, as his gathered bride right here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, we are voluntarily doing what? Submitting ourselves under the headship of Christ in the local church. So that's the same example that, that Paul uses to demonstrate how the wife comes voluntarily into a marriage and willingly submits herself under the headship of Christ in a marriage. This is, again, what submission looks like. It is not accepting an idea of inferiority or a lesser role for the wife to voluntarily submit to the headship of her husband, just as, again, the church submits itself under the headship of Christ. And um, as a side note, this is another shameless plug for the importance of a plurality of elders. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Right? So how we structure our church really demonstrates how we should relate to each other within the context of marriage. If we have a single pastor who is a, a domineering personality and uh, overtakes the, the leadership of the church, ultimately we forget that who is really the head of the church. We forget that Christ is the head of the church and it becomes this domineering single focus right here that isn't always uh, lived out that way. Certainly there's other contexts and other ways to structure the church, but biblically we believe at Liberty Hills that the best way to keep us on track and to keep our human nature in check for us to continue to serve as, as under shepherds in the body of Christ is for us to come together as a plurality as we see in the New Testament so that we can say, hey, we're collectively coming together even as leadership along with the gathered church under the headship of what? Of Christ. 
So we have the example of the structure of the church, of, of how we, as husband and wife, should relate to each other. Let's look at verse number 24. We have this phrase here. Wives should submit in, what, everything to their husbands. This prepositional phrase in everything, again, has been the victim of gross misapplication. So let's clarify this phrase again. This phrase is, first of all, not an absolute. Wives should not submit in areas that would be considered harmful, contrary to God's word, or outright sinful. Right? We see that in uh, examples of this, even in, in Acts 5, when the apostles were brought before the council, they said, uh, we obey God over man. Right? We obey God over man. So if a wife is in an oppressive relationship with the husband who is physically at harm or who is uh, proactively drawing her into sinful choices that would compromise her relationship with the Lord, should she blindly submit herself under that? Absolutely not. Right? So the context here in everything is assuming what? That we have a husband and we have a wife coming together, understanding their biblical roles, and that the husband is going to be relating to the wife in a way that he should. He's going to be walking in the Spirit. And as he's walking in the Spirit and leading his wife, there should be a submission in everything. This is an idea that if, as a husband, we feel like the direction of our family should go this direction, and I am right with God, and there is no gross sin in my life, I should not just blindly follow a husband into active participation in sin. A wife has a responsibility to protect her own relationship with the Lord, potentially her relationship with her children, their well-being, both spiritually and physically. So this idea that wives should submit in everything has the idea of a mindset, the disposition and demeanor of the wife should be that of submission to her husband in everything. This does not mean that she could, should compromise right from wrong in her relationship with the Lord. So needless to say here, we have this beautiful passage of understanding the responsibility of the wife in the role of biblical marriage. Let's turn our attention to the men. And all God's women said, I heard one amen. Sorry, I thought I would get more, right? So our first point this morning was that, again, wives should submit to their husbands in the context of God's design and biblical marriage. Our second final point this morning is that husbands should love their wives in the context of God's design and biblical marriage. Husbands should love their wives. After commanding the wives to submit to their husbands, Paul does what? He turns directly to the husbands and commands them with equal urgency and intentionality to love their wives. To love their wives. Now, if, if I'm honest with myself, there's a lot of other verbs that I probably would have inserted right there, right? And unfortunately, just because of my human nature, Empathy and, and sympathy and grace and mercy are not my spiritual gifts, right? And so when, when Paul turns his attention to his wives, the fact that Paul would call out that, that husbands should now do what? Love their wives. This was, this was earth-shattering, especially in Paul's day. 
that Paul would write specifically to the husbands in that culture, in that context, in that day, and say, husbands, love your wives. This is a culturally loaded, this would have been a foreign idea. Husbands in that day would have normally been encouraged to what rule over and to domineer over their wives. This was culturally accepted in their day. This is what they would have been encouraged to do. This was a position of prominence, of authority, of standing in your society is to keep your wife in check, so to speak. There was these cultural norms that would have been very much understood, but Paul turns that on its head and he says, you know what? This is what the gospel is going to look like. And husbands, I'm going to urge you to relate to your wives in a countercultural way that you never even heard of. Instead of domineering over in, in this headship leadership type of role, I'm going to call you to pick up a towel and to serve and to wash some feet and to love your wives. Rarely, if ever, again, in, in any other ancient texts outside of the Bible, would we see this idea of men relating to their wives in love. To go a step further, the Greek word that Paul uses here for love is agapao. That word we know comes from that, 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 that biblical idea of agape type of love, which is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's unconditional. It's the highest standard of the four types of love in the Bible. And we never see this used to describe the duties of the husband outside of the Bible in ancient text. So again, going to the heart of marriage is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Christ. Relating to mankind through what? Love. Through love. So Paul was speaking a radical, countercultural type of love that could only be perfectly lived out in the personal work of one person. Who is our example, men, in loving our wives? It is Christ. Let's look at verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So husbands should love their wives in the context of God's design of biblical marriage. Our example in that is Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How then did Christ love the church? What did he do? He, he gave. He gave what? What did he give, men? He gave himself for whom? For her. The church, his bride, he gave himself for her. Man, when we choose to stand before God again in his witnesses and make those sacred vows to each other, we are committing ourselves to a lifetime of Christ-like love, sacrificially giving of ourselves for our wives as Christ loved 
we too should love. Choosing to give, choosing to empty, choosing to prefer herself over my needs, choosing to protect, to cherish, to honor, and to pursue her always and forsaking all others. Is this not, again, what we see in the example of Christ? He left the flock and he ran after who? He ran after me. He ran after you. He brought us back safely. This is the beautiful example of Christ shepherding and loving and caring for his sheep, his church, his bride. Husbands, we are to love our wives as we love our own bodies. Men, most of us in some way, shape, or form, some better than others, take care of our own bodies. We pursue our ability to continue to sustain our life and existence on this earth every single day by doing what? Putting food in our mouth, sometimes more than we should. Uh, we do so by what? Exercising um, some less than we should, right? We do so by the basic essentials of food, shelter, and well-being. We pursue our continued existence on this earth. Why? Because we care for our own bodies. Would you agree with that? I'm thankful that y'all took your Sunday morning shower, right? That the basic idea of hygiene is important, not just in our culture, but you personally. Take care of yourself to present yourself in a way that is pleasing. You can only do so much here though, right? I mean, it is what it is. But we do our best to take care of ourselves. A simple illustration. With that idea of self-preservation, if our leg is bleeding, what are we going to try to do? We're going to try to stop the bleeding, right? Man, if your leg is bleeding, so you're going on a very manly hike or doing something really manly like that and you fall and, and you... you you, you scratch or cut your leg and it's bleeding, you're going to take measures to stop that bleeding. Because we know if you don't stop that bleeding, what's eventually going to happen? Your body's going to run out of blood and you're going to, you're going to die. So the most important thing to do is to stop the bleeding. Then what would you do? You'd revisit that wound often, change that dressing or that bandage. You would monitor that wound to be sure that it's healing properly and to make sure it's not getting infected. If it were, what would you do? You would go to the doctor and you would get a what? An antibiotic. And you would make sure that infection was kept in check and that it was ultimately that it was overcome by those antibiotics and that ultimately that wound was nursed back to 100% healing. That's the idea of caring for yourself. If something's wrong, you address it. You take measures to fix it. You take measures to bring it back as it should be, as God designed your body to be, with not holes in it bleeding, right? This is the idea, the basic idea of self-preservation is we do the natural and normal thing to address and to fix that which is out of place, so, man, my illustration here to you is a call for us to recognize that many of our marriages are actively bleeding 
We are not functioning as we should be, as God designed us to be as husbands, loving in an agape type of love, a selfless, sacrificial type of love. We are bleeding in our marriages and we are doing nothing about it but sticking our head in the sand, opening up a Netflix series and continuing to waste our marriages away. And we wonder why divorce rates are so high. We wonder why we're not being who we should be as a body of Christ. It's because our marriages stink. And God wants something more for our marriages. The glory of God and the gospel in this world is at stake by how we as husbands relate to our wives. Husbands, that's on me. That's on you. That's on us. That's the gut check this morning, what Paul is saying. Men, love your wives. Cherish them. Pursue them. Honor them. Uphold their dignity and their worth in your home. That's God's plan for marriage. We're bleeding. God's word, no doubt, gives us sins of commission, meaning an instruction, a command, a duty, that is expected to be completed. This is when I actively do something that I know I shouldn't do. So many times, this is the vision, the small vision that we have for our marriage is this, avoid catastrophe. Man, our idea of having a successful marriage is that I don't have an affair with another woman. The vision that I have for my marriage is just don't fall into pornography. Avoid the big things. Avoid the catastrophes. Avoid the, the devastating effects of some big, gross sin. And that's where it stops. As long as I'm not having an affair, as long as I'm not addicted to pornography, hey, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm not as bad as this guy over here. And I coast through life, accepting the status quo of a mediocre marriage. But friends, don't forget, there's also sins of what? Omission. This is the warning signs of sins of omission, meaning to actively not do something that I know I should be doing. The sins of commission and omission are equally important for us to understand. I should have the same sense of urgency of avoiding these gross sins that I know I shouldn't do. I should have the same urgency of not engaging in my marriage and loving my wife as Christ loved the church. Does that make sense where I'm going with that? So when I fail to love my wife in this way, when I fail to uphold her, when I fail to support her, when I fail to pursue her, when I fail to, or excuse me, when I allow myself to weaken my understanding of this idea of biblical marriage, I allow other things and other pursuits, other loves to creep into my, into my heart, into my life, I failed. So friends, Paul is challenging us this morning to have a God-sized vision for our marriage. To understand God's design and a complementarian design of marriage, equal but distinct. To pursue her, to love her, as Christ loved the church. And he gave. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul is looking back to this establishment, this institution of marriage back in Genesis. 
And he's reminding them that this is what this conversation is about. It's, it's the institution of marriage. It's the glory of God. It's the role and the purpose that marriage has in this world. And it's evangelistic. It is sanctifying. Marriage is not about how happy I can be in my marriage. It's about how holy I can be in my marriage and how I can become more like Christ through this relationship of husband and wife. We should be pursuing our wives in love, leading her spiritually, and have an active participation in her walk with the Lord. Instead, we've defaulted to this world's idea that it's about my happiness, that I'm the head of the household, that I wear the pants, that I go through the motions, and we fail to realize all that God has for us in this beautiful thing called marriage. It says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul finishes with this summary statement reminding them once again that marriage is a big deal in God's economy. And because of that, wives, submit to the headship of your husband. Wives, love, or excuse me, respect your husband. This is what Paul has to say. Let's rise up. Let's lean in and let's ask God to use our marriages as he intended to show forth the gospel and his glory for all the world to see. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for marriage. We thank you for everything that you have given us in marriage. Whether young or old, whether currently married or aspiring to be, I pray that right now today, we can practice out these principles of biblical marriage. God's design, your design for marriage. And I pray that we would do it for your glory. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.